We are starting. Don't mind, just leave your information on the connect Would you card. change the slide in front to, of you? Uh, there's more in the Thanks. back at the connect table. We'd love to. We're starting a new series today in the book of Daniel. That's going to be your fall. benediction. Sermon series. The Lord bless and, uh, you. We keep will, uh, the Lord make his face shine today upon you. Cover chapter and be one. Gracious to so you. If you'd like to get your the Lord lift up his countenance one. upon you. Uh, even though this, give the events of this book took place over 2,500 years ago, and uh, it all happened in the court of Babylonian and Persian kings, so that doesn't seem really relevant, does it? And yet, it's, it's one of the books of the Bible that seem to have a particular connection to our culture and our day. And is particularly relevant to Christians like us today. The book of Daniel is essentially about the interaction between the believer and the unbelieving culture. Between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of the world. The sacred realm and the secular realm. That's how we approach this book. I think that's the right way to look at it. Sure, we can focus on the prophecies and we'll do some of that. But the book really isn't about that. It's stories and visions that have to do with the conflict of two worlds and two types of people. And how do we deal with that? And uh, Because we live in, the, in this Western culture in a large American city in the 21st century, we are maybe even more, more interested in these issues than before. So how do we relate to culture? How do we relate to the world around us? That's going to be our question throughout this sermon series. So let's read chapter 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand and some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace, and to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years and at the end of that time they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar. Hananiah he called Shadrach. Mishael he called Meshach. And Azariah he called Abednego. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king who assigned your food and your drink. For why should he see that you were in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. Then Daniel said to the steward, whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Test your servants for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you. And deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this manner. 
and tested them for ten days. At the end of ten days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took their took away their food and the wine that they were to drink and gave them vegetables. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. At the end of that time, when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke with them, and among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore they stood before the king, and in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. That's our text. Okay, We'll work through it. I'll give you the background as we work through the text. And uh, I'd like to divide this message into three parts. So this is your outline if you're a note taker. I'd like to first look at another name. So look at the two names of Daniel. Secondly, at another way, another way of relating to culture. And lastly, at another king. We have King Nebuchadnezzar here, but there's another king we need to pay attention to. Another name, another way, and another king. So first, what's the deal with the two names? How does a, a good Hebrew boy like Daniel end up with a pagan Babylonian name like Belteshazzar? How does that happen? Well, this is the historical background of this story. In 606 BC, or around that time, Nebuchadnezzar, who was the most powerful man in the world by far, this is not in question by anybody, powerful ruler of, a, of the greatest empire of the day, he besieged Jerusalem, the capital of Judea, where Daniel and his friends lived, and he sacked it. And he took everything valuable out of the city. Of course, that meant things in the temple of God. Right? That's where all the most valuable things were. So gold and silver and bronze. He took that and put it in the temple of his god in Shinar. But he also took something else that was valuable. He took people. And he took the best people. He took these teenagers, probably late teens. So Daniel and his friends are probably late teens at this point. Uh, he took the nobility and the royal, uh, the royal men. He took those who were well-educated, those who looked good, those who were fit the elite, and he took them to Babylon to be educated and trained to finally serve in his own government. Now, why did he do that? And by the way, he did it anywhere he went. Anywhere he conquered, he would do the same thing. Two reasons for that. One is that if you lose the elite, you lose the leadership of the nation, it is far less likely that they're going to be able to mount another rebellion against Babylon anytime soon. So he simply just took the leaders, the young leaders. Second reason is that he needed people to run his ever-expanding empire. So he needed good people to be managers and officials and bureaucrats in his own empire. So he would simply take the cream of the crop from any country that he went to, train them, make sure they were loyal to him now, and then he would put them in positions of authority at his own court. So that's his plan, that's what he did. It worked remarkably well for, for a while. Now, the question we have to that would be, how can you be sure that these people whom you have just conquered would be loyal to you? What can you do to get them on your side? How can you change their identity? How can you change their minds? How can you make them different so now they will serve you as well as they served 
their own king whom he had conquered. So there's a whole system that Babylon had of restructuring, constructing a new identity for the captive aristocrats so they can serve in the court of Babylon. Now let's work through that and you will see what they did and you will see the parallels with our own life a little bit later. First, they got a new name. All four original names, Daniel and, and uh, uh, all those names are, are Hebrew names. And as you know, and if you've read scripture, you know that Hebrew names all kind of sound similar, right? They either have an L somewhere, Daniel, or they have a, a Yah somewhere like Isaiah. And the reason for that is those are, those are portions of God's name. So Daniel, L means God. So there's something about God that is reflected in Daniel's name. Uh, Hananiah has, a, has, a, has Yahweh in it. Yah is Yahweh. So all those names had to do with their religion. It had to do with the Hebrew God, the God of, of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. So for example, Daniel means God is my judge. Hananiah means Yahweh is gracious. Mishael means who is what God is. This marveling at the nature of God. And Azariah means Yahweh is my helper. So very Hebrew names. And all the names that they got, the new names, the Babylonian names, have the names of Babylonian gods in them. God of Bel, the supreme god of Babylon, Aku and Nabu. So they got new names, but not just new names, new pagan names. Now imagine, imagine how hard it was for Daniel and his friends to even hear those names. Remember, they grew up in Jerusalem, and they grew up under the reign of Josiah, who was a reformer king, the king who, who fought against idolatry in Jerusalem. So they grew up thinking any pagan deity is an abomination. They were repulsed by all those names. And then they get to Babylon, and what happens? They're given pagan names, reflecting the glories of pagan gods. Now back in those days, Babylon was idolatry central. If you wanted to learn about idols, you would go to Babylon. Babylon was a society, it's totally pluralistic, polytheistic society that embraced all sorts of gods and worshipped all sorts of gods. Imagine coming out of monotheistic culture in Jerusalem with the temple worship where only one god exists, only one god is worshipped, everything is focused on this one god, and you get to Babylon. Your identity is challenged. They used to be Hebrew. Now they're forced to be Babylonians. They used to have Hebrew religious names. Now they're given Babylonian religious names. Not just names. They were given a new job. Remember that they were trained for government jobs. And of course, some of us think nobody gets trained for government jobs anymore, right? No, that's not true. Uh, they did get trained for government jobs. And it was an important thing. You were supposed to learn how to run things. You were supposed to be a good manager. You were supposed to know how to, how to lead people. But remember the government that they were supposed to serve in. That's the same government that sent an army to Jerusalem and destroyed their national and ethnic identity. And now they're brought to Babylon. They said, now you help us do that to other countries. You help us run our empire well so we can do these kind of things to other people. That must have been really hard. They're also given a new education. They're being trained in the language and literature of Babylon. Now, new language 
plus new literature equals new culture. Much of your culture depends on your language and on the books you've read and grew up with. And so they were culturally changed. Their cultural identity was challenged. Notice how it says that the literature and language was that of the Chaldeans. Chaldean is just another term for Babylon, but it reflected a specific ethnic group within the empire. Nebuchadnezzar, the king, belonged to the Chaldeans. And Chaldeans were known as experts in magic. Did you know that? Experts in magic. So much of their literature and much of their language and culture have to do with magic. Now, one commentator says, the accumulated literature of the Chaldeans included omens, magic incantations, prayers and hymns, myths and legends, scientific formulae for skills such as glass-making, mathematics, and astrology. It's interesting that what they were actually trained in was a culture that was full of things that Israel abhorred. The law of Moses specifically forbade all those things, omens and divinations and sorcery and dream-telling, all that stuff to, to a Jewish kid like Daniel seemed not only wrong, but just repulsive. There's nowhere in his heart that he had any inclination to do that. And yet, that was the situation where they were placed in. Many subjects that Daniel and his friends were learning were not only foreign to them, which is expected, but were considered an abomination in Israel. And talk about a new cultural identity. And also they had new food. I'll explain later why Daniel refused to eat food from the king's table. We'll make that point a little bit later. But it's pretty clear that on the king's side, what the king wanted to do is he wanted to, one, just make him happy, give him good stuff to eat, good stuff to drink, so they're happy, so they like Babylon. But also he wanted to establish a connection with them. So they start depending on the king. So they start thinking that their loyalty is to the king because the king feeds them. All these good things in life are coming directly from the king. And hopefully over time, they're supposed to train for three years, hopefully over time they start becoming more and more indebted and feeling more and more loyal to the king. Now let me tell you one more thing. I'm not at all confident that that's true, but pretty sure. It's probable that Daniel and his friends were made eunuchs. Because at that time, in the court of a Babylonian king, if you were a male official, you were likely a eunuch. Why? Because they wanted undivided attention to the king. They didn't want you to worry about family. They didn't want you to worry about friends. And so people were made eunuchs to serve all their lives in the court faithfully to the king. So not only new name, new education, new culture, right? Not only all those things, but new sexual identity. They're very sexual. Now, this, these are teenagers we're talking about. Pretty important to a teenager. All of that is taken away from them. And new things are offered to them. Why? Well, Nebuchadnezzar did not want them to be Hebrews anymore. He wanted them to be Babylonians so they can serve him well, so they can be loyal to the king. Now, we need to see, and the reason I spent so much time on that, because we need to see how systematically and how unrelenting this pursuit was to replace their identity with something new. This was not just something that was left to chance. This was a program that were put in that was tried and true, and they were supposed to change, and on the other side come out as Babylonians committed to this new 
Empire. Now, for some of us believers today, Christians in our own culture in this city, we see a lot of similarities with that. It's no longer culturally acceptable for us to mention God's name in public. Unless you're mocking God, then you can. But if, if you're serious, if you're making a serious claim about a biblical God that d- demands exclusive allegiance, it's trouble, usually. It's, it's not acceptable. And so, like these Hebrew youths, our names are changed too. Our identities are changed as well. Many jobs today demand the kind of schedule and commitment of time and energy that makes it very difficult to be involved in a local church and to be under Christian teaching. Some jobs, in fact, expect Christians to compromise their principles and moral convictions. Sometimes it's just an assumption that if you take this job, you're going to have to leave your Christianity at the door. The educational system is not only secular, but it is increasingly anti-religious, anti-Christian. Our culture is, in general, um, obviously stereotype and making generalizations, so take that for what it is. But our culture, in general, is consumeristic and materialistic, which is, of course, exactly the opposite of Christian spirituality and service. Most people today are emotionally dependent on the entertainment industry. Uh, whatever, you, whatever example you want to take, sports uh, on TV or social media or, uh, or video games or TV, whatever you want to take, but many people live their lives addicted to the product that the culture puts before them. And when it's not there, we feel sick. We feel like we need it, we want it. When is the next episode coming out? When is the next game? I need to build up for the big game now. So I need lots of commentary. And if I watch a show, I also want to be on Twitter to make sure everybody's reacting to the show the same way I am. We're all caught up in that. And that's the cultural way. That's the cultural norm today. I don't need to tell you, of course, that our sexual identity and our sexual views as Christians is under constant pressure both from from the legal part of our culture and from from the popular culture. Uh, We are forced often to to reject our own views on sex and marriage and embrace the views of our culture. So I look at our lives and I look at our culture and I think, man, this sounds a lot like what Daniel and his friends had to go through. Now many of us, as we live in this, and, and we live in the city, so all of us are connected somehow to our culture around us. We can't just completely ignore it. But most of us are rather confused as to how we are to react to it. What do we do with it? We're here. We're believers. We have our Hebrew names, so to speak. But we're also given this new cultural names. How do we reconcile those two? How do we do it well? What is the biblical response to our culture? I think a lot of us feel like the Jewish exiles felt you know, after Daniel and his friends, after the elite was taken to Babylon, many other just regular people were taken to Babylon as well. And they all kind of settled outside of the city and this is how they felt. This is Psalm 137. records their emotions for us. And I think many of us identify with that. By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. Zion is the hill in Jerusalem where the temple was. On the willows, there we hung up our lyres. 
For there are captors required of us songs, and our tormentors mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. This is where it gets really relevant to us. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? Isn't that your question? How shall I sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? How do I reconcile those two identities? What do I do? How do I praise God, live a Christian life, not compromise my, com- my commitment to Him? How do I do Christian things and think Christian thoughts, and yet I'm still part of this larger culture? How can I sing the Lord's song in a foreign land, in a hostile-to-me culture? What's the right response? Well, before I give you the right response, I'll give you two wrong responses, okay? Just because I'm a preacher and I can do that. So, Two wrong responses, and you will find yourself likely in one or the other. So, so listen carefully. One, we can conform to the culture. We can forget our old name and our old identity. And we can simply assimilate. We can simply join in and say, whatever the culture believes is what I will believe. Whatever the culture thinks is right and important, I will agree with that. And whatever norms of behavior the culture subscribes to, I will subscribe to as well. This is the way of mainline liberal churches. I'm going to put some, some particular groups of people who really affirm that. Uh, there are lots of churches who feel that there's no point in resisting the culture. Let's assimilate. Theology and ethics become flexible and reflect the values and trends of the culture. And so you just go along. Culture is good, and we're going to trust our culture, and we're going to adjust to that. Of course, if you have read the Bible, there are many, many warnings against that. For example, Romans 12 says, Do not be conformed to this world. It's hard to find a clearer warning. Do not be conformed to this world. And they do mean the culture. 1 John 2.15 says, Do not love the world, or the things in the world. Do not love the world or the things in the world. We can't assimilate. We can't simply conform to our culture. Scripture clearly tells us that it's not an appropriate way. In fact, we see that Daniel and his friends did not conform. And even though they had other names, they had Babylonian names, they kept their Hebrew names. Throughout the book of Daniel, they are referred to by their Hebrew names. In fact, the only time their Babylonian names come up is when they're talking to the king. But they kept their culture. They kept their religious identity. Daniel still prayed three times a day, turning towards Jerusalem, remembering the temple, remembering the God of the Hebrews. And of course, you know that as you read the book more, Daniel is very open about the supremacy of God above the idols and above the kings of Babylon and Persia. So they did not compromise. They did not conform. And of course, the biggest story probably about that is Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refusing to worship the golden idol. So there was a point where they said, we cannot conform to this. There was some line for them somewhere. So that approach of conforming and assimilating is not a biblical approach, even though many Christians, unfortunately, embrace it. Second unbiblical approach would be to condemn the culture, to reject our new name and identity. So the first approach is forget your old name. The second approach is just don't embrace your new name and reject your new identity. This is the way of the fundamentalist churches. 
There are many conservative fundamentalist churches that think that there's no way Christians can be part of this godless culture. And so let's move to the suburbs, right? That's, that's the plan. Let's move to a rural area where we don't have to interact with, with culture as much. Let's not take jobs in the arts or government or finance. We need to separate. We need to stay outside the culture. Well, that's not the right response either. Look at Daniel and his friends. They served in the Babylonian government. It's hard to find a place that is, that is closer to the godless culture than the Babylonian government. They helped run the empire. In fact, God keeps Daniel in a position of influence for over 70 years. At the end of the chapter, it says that Daniel was there until the first year of Cyrus. Cyrus, this is several emperors later. And with all the regime changes, with all the new people coming in, Medes and Persians taking over Babylon, Daniel's still there. Because he was a good government worker. He was valued. And so they kept him. So is there another way? Is there a way where we can neither assimilate nor conform to the culture? Is there a way for us to relate to a culture in a biblical way where we can be Christians and yet be engaged with culture? Yes, there is a way. And that's our way. That's Daniel's way. That is what we need to embrace. So let's look at Jeremiah 29 that gives us a template for our interaction with our culture. Remember I told you that the Jewish exiles settled outside of the city at first? In fact, they had some false prophets who told them, separate. Don't go into the city. Separate. Stay here. God is going to judge the city and then you're going to return to Jerusalem. Don't engage with the Babylonians. But those were false prophets. The true prophet, Jeremiah, spoke on behalf of God in Jeremiah 29, verse 4. This is what he says to the exiles. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile, and pray to the Lord on his behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. This is the right way, the biblical way, to relate to our culture. We're neither to assimilate and lose our Christian identity, nor to separate and refuse our cultural identity. We're to live in the culture as Christians. The New Testament, specifically 1 Peter, describes all Christians as living in exile in the foreign culture. Did you know that this metaphor of the Jewish exiles in Babylon is now taken and and put on all Christians in the New Testament? We're all like that. And so the same template works for us. We're not to stay outside of the city. We're not to stay outside of the godless culture. We're supposed to go in there. But yet, as we're going in, we're supposed to live as Christians. We're not supposed to compromise our faith, our worship, our behavior. We must make our life in this city and in this culture. We are to take jobs and go to school and marry and raise children in this culture. We are to so connect ourselves with our culture that the welfare of our city 
should become our welfare. That's the template for the Christian life in this culture. is to so connect yourself to the city that when the city does well, you do well. And when you do well, the city does well. This is how close God wants us to be with our culture. That is the way of Daniel. It's to be within the culture, but change the culture from within. That is the appropriate response. Let me put it this way. Have two names. Embrace both of your names. You have a Hebrew name because you're a Christian. You have this Christian identity, but you've also been given a cultural identity. Embrace both. Live in this tension. Live in the culture as a Christian. Now let me apply it to fundamentalists and to liberals. Remember I told you those are the two common responses, but they're not biblical. Here's an application for the fundamentalists. Do not separate. Go into secular jobs. Stay in the city. Don't go to the suburbs. Stay in the city. Remember that Daniel and his friends were part of the culture. So if you and most of us were, were on one spectrum or the other, all of us here would tend to go either to separate or to assimilate. So if you're more towards separation, pull yourself back a little bit and say, God loves the city. The city is important to God. I need to be part of it. I need to be part of his work. How do I work it out? So you pull back. Now on the other side, I think probably that's probably the temptation for most of us in this church, is the temptation to assimilate. So this is the application for liberals. Don't compromise. Have you bought into the world's view on money, sex, and power? Now Daniel and his friends refused to compromise on these essential things. They did not. We can't read this story and say, oh, they just assimilated. They didn't assimilate. Kept their identities. There were certain things in their lives that they would not compromise on. They would not worship idols. Even if it meant fiery furnace, den of lions, those kind of things, they, they stood strong. So what is it for you, as, a, as an assimilated Christian, if you are, what is it that you have compromised on? Where do you need to pull back and make your stand and say, as a Christian, I can't be a part of this. This is not how I am to relate to this as a Christian. Now, I understand that even as I'm speaking, there's got to be questions in your mind. How do I do that? Because I've given you a, a third way. I give you another way. I give you a way that combines the two, which is always more confusing. It's always easier just to say, just separate or just assimilate. Well, how do you do neither? How do you go in between and say, I'm not going to assimilate or, or, uh, or isolate myself, but how do I live as a Christian inside this culture? How, how do I do it well? And the tricky part is that I don't know. I don't know specifically how to do that because I don't know your life as well as you do. I don't know your job as well as you do. Now, for example, I talked to somebody from the church last week and, and they said, you know, I, I'm offered this job. It's for a gambling company. Um, I will not necessarily be doing anything with gambling. I'm going to do other stuff for this company. I'm going to help it run well. But I know that the company is involved in gambling. That's their, that's their business. The question to me as a pastor was, should I take the job? I don't know. That was my answer. <laughs> so come to me for wisdom. I don't know. I don't know what to tell you because there's a lot of area where you need to figure out for yourself how to do it. 
you need to have a principle in mind. You need to know what your approach is. But within that, you don't know whether your presence is going to be good gospel witness in that world, because that is likely, like for this person. What if he goes into it and he, he, and he changes the culture from within? What if he helps them enforce more just practices? That would be good, right? But also, the other option is, what if he goes in there and now he contributes to the injustice? He contributes to the bad things they're doing. How do you know? And especially when you're dealing with these areas of, of, of work like finance and the arts and the movies, I mean, you talk about those worlds. Should we not go in there? No, I think the Bible tells us we should go in there. But we go in there as Christians and we make decisions that are wise decisions as to what particularly in that world we get involved in. Those are hard decisions. It's messy, it's complicated, it's confusing. But I think that's what God wants us to do. Now, I'm going to give you, like I said, I'm not going to give you any specifics. But I will give you a general principle that I think really helps. Here's the principle. Don't think about your involvement in a particular part of the culture as a clash of two kingdoms, of two cultures. It's very easy to say, how do I keep my Christianity? Or how do I keep my Christian faith? How do I keep a list of my rules in that world? That's really easy to think that way, and that leads to separation or assimilation. Think about it differently. Think about it this way. How do I keep my loyalty to my king in this foreign kingdom? This is a significant change in thinking. So as you go in into your job, your question shouldn't be, how do I present Christianity in my worldview and my culture here? Your question should be, how do I honor my king, this personal king that I know that I'm in a relationship with in this particular culture? That's the general principle. To live in the kingdom of the world while serving another king. So as you find yourself in the kingdom of comedy or banking or city government or, or sports, the question you must be asking is how do I serve God, my real king, in this foreign kingdom? And honest answers to this question will determine where you take your stand and get thrown into the fiery furnace or the den of lions and where you can continue exercising gospel influence in your context. I can't be any more specific than that. You have to figure it out. You have to do the work yourself in your own context. But I'll give you one last example from Daniel's life. This is a decision that he made and his friends made that affirmed loyalty to their true king, to Yahweh, to God, and undermined their loyalty to King Nebuchadnezzar. They refused to eat from the king's table. Now, commentators are wondered about this. and If you read, there's different opinions on that. Some say, well, they didn't want to defile themselves because it was ritually unclean. The food that they were given from the king was probably a food that was offered to idols, to Babylonian deities. And that's true. And pretty much everything was offered to an idol. So from farmers to, to merchants, everything went through these rituals, all the produce and all the meat and all the wine was at one point or another dedicated to an idol. So if they didn't want to defile themselves, they would have to deny everything. Vegetables and water probably included in that. So I don't think that's that. 
I think they were willing to be flexible on that a little bit, just like the New Testament is later. Another opinion was that some commentators say, well, they didn't want to defile themselves because the food that was offered from the king's table likely included pork and shellfish and other stuff that the Jews did not eat because it was against the law of Moses. But again, you look at wine, there's no prohibitions against wine in, in the law of Moses, and yet they refused wine from the, Lord's, from, from the king's table specifically. Why? I think there's something else going on here. I think their decision to refuse to take food and wine from the king's table had to do with their loyalty to the real king. Joyce Baldwin, a commentator that I've been using for this study, says, it would seem that Daniel rejected the symbol of dependence on the king because he wished to be free to fulfill his primary obligation to the God he served. The defilement he feared was not so much a ritual as a moral defilement arising from the subtle flattery of gifts and favors which entailed hidden implications of loyal support, however dubious the king's future policies might prove to be. What happened there? I think Daniel just said, this will indebt me to the king. And then I will have to support him and he will do ungodly things and I know that he will. So I'm going to try to draw a line somewhere and I'm going to say, this way I will be able to keep my allegiance to my real king and reject the provision from this king. Now the question is, where is that line for you? What is that example for you? And I don't know. Let me give you just two ideas that I thought of. Sunday worship. Sunday worship may be that example for you in your job. When you say, because I worship my king, the way I, I think of my time has to include regular Sunday worship. So I will not work for you, my employer, on Sundays. Maybe that's your line. Maybe where you say, this keeps my allegiance to my king and that undermines my dependence on my work. Or maybe it has to do with money. Maybe because you know that God is the one who provides. It's your king that feeds you. It's not your job. You will say, I'm going to be generous with my money. I'm going to tithe. I'm going to be generous to the poor. I'm going to be generous towards missions. And that way, I will assert my allegiance to my king, my real king, and I will undermine my allegiance to my employer, to my worker, to my culture. That's another example. How do you do that? Figure it out in your own context how you can worship this king that is the real king, the true king, yet at the same time be part of your culture. Now, what happened when Daniel refused to eat this lavish food and wine from the king's table? He ate vegetables and water. That's all they had. And they became fatter. They became fatter. Why? Because that's what the king was looking for. The king wanted to see healthy people. And in those days, fat is healthy. That's how they saw the world. If you had a lot of food to eat, that was good. If you had good food to eat, that was great. And so they came out just as fat as the other people in their generation, in their peer group, who were fed from the king's table. So when you think about doing the Daniel fast, let me say this. Some of you are Christians who have heard about the Daniel fast. That is a big thing in the suburbs and in some of the fundamentalist churches when people fast like Daniel did so they can get fit and lose weight, this is a weird interpretation of Scripture, I have to say. 
This should make you fatter. Because by this idea, God should provide to you even more than you gave up because you wanted to undermine your allegiance to the human king. So, I've mentioned Daniel's king. And I think the success of your involvement in culture, the biblical involvement in culture, will depend on how well you know Daniel's real king. How well you know your real king. So who is this king that demands our loyalty in the midst of a foreign kingdom? Do you know him? This king is a king with two names. Son of God, son of man. This king is a king with two natures, divine and human. This king Jesus took the third way himself. He took the other, another way of relating to culture. Jesus did not assimilate, nor did he separate. Jesus was not a fundamentalist. That needs to be said in some churches. Jesus was not a fundamentalist. Even though he was God, he refused to separate from the fallen world. How do you explain the incarnation? God becoming part of the fallen culture. He became human, lived in the sinful culture, and proclaimed the coming of God's kingdom. Now, on the other side, Jesus was not a liberal. Let me say that. Some of you need to hear that. Jesus was not liberal. Jesus did not assimilate to the culture. Even though he was fully human, he refused to conform to the human culture. In fact, it was his uncompromising preaching of the gospel that threatened the cultural elite, just like Daniel and their friends' behavior threatened the Babylonian elite. He refused to bow down to the idols of the culture. And like Daniel and others, he was arrested and taken to his death. And Jesus, from the cross, as he looked over the city, he prayed for it because he loved it. Jesus sought the welfare of the city and that is why he died for the city. That is the kind of king that demands our allegiance. The sins of the fallen human culture, the sins of the world, were placed on him and he was burned up and devoured by lions on the cross. You look at the story of Daniel. Those guys were saved. They were delivered. Jesus was not. Jesus went to his death and he died. And that is how he sets us free. Because he can send us into the world and tell us we are not dependent on the world anymore. We don't need to be scared of the world. We can go and live as free, joyful Christian in the midst of a godless culture and move it towards God. Another king feeds us. We don't have to rely on the king of our culture. Now we're going to come to the table and take communion. And I want you to keep thinking about Daniel's story as we do that. We come to this table. This is the table of your true king. This is the table of Jesus. And Jesus wants to feed you. You can reject the dependence on your job. You can reject the dependence on the culture of entertainment. You can reject all those things in the world that the world tells you are essential to you. You can reject that and says, my God will feed me. Even though I'll only eat vegetables and water, 
my God will make me fatter. Those are the thoughts you need to have in your head when you come to the table. There's enough sustenance here for you because it comes directly from your king, the king who died and rose for you to give you a meaningful life in, even in this fallen culture. Let me pray. And then if you are a believer, I invite you to come to this table.